We have been moving uh, pretty quickly through our current preaching series, focusing on the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, as of this morning, we are halfway there. We, woo, we have covered uh, six prophets, and we have six more to go. And so this is a really good Sunday for us to do a quick recap on where we've been, especially as we're now we're transitioning from one period of Israel's history to another. So I'm going to start this morning by putting our timeline up on the screen uh, that we've seen a couple of times. And so here are the basic uh, eras of Israel's history. We have been in that pink section there, what we call the divided kingdom, uh, which runs from 930 to 722 BC. And you'll recall, this is one of the most uh, difficult periods of history when it comes to God's people. During the preceding area, what you see there is the United Kingdom. Israel had reached the high point of her prosperity under the leadership first of David and then of Solomon. It seemed as if all of God's promises to Abraham were coming true in that day. You think about the Jews once they were slaves uh, in Egypt, but now with the blessing of Yahweh, they had built this powerful kingdom in the midst of God's promised land. It's been said, and I think it's accurate, if there was ever a heaven on earth after the fall, it was Jerusalem in the days of Solomon. But then the wisest king on earth became a fool. His heart was led astray by his many pagan wives, by his great wealth, by his worldwide reputation and his arrogance. And it's under his son's rule in 930 BC that the nation is split into two. And both kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, begin to drift away from Yahweh, drift from the covenant, and begin to head towards judgment and destruction. And yet God was merciful. He sent a series of prophets to his people to call them to repentance, to, to call them to return to the covenant, to return to Yahweh. And if they wouldn't, he warned them that judgment was coming. So God did everything he could to get Israel's attention back in the day. So let's look at this particular uh, timeline. These are the six prophets that we've covered so far. And for now, I want you to notice those three in pink above the line that prophesied to Israel. First, God sent Joel in the middle of the ninth century BC. And Joel, using a locust plague, a present-day locust plague, as a symbol of God's coming judgment, he prophesied something even greater to come, even worse to come, a foreign army that would invade Israel. And then he even looked further into the distance at the great and terrible day of the Lord. Ninety years later, God sends Amos, this very simple shepherd and farmer from the city of Tekoa, and Amos pointed his finger of judgment at Israel's detestable worship sites, the worship sites at Dan and Bethel that had been built in the northern kingdom. And he admonished them for living at ease in their prosperity instead of grieving over the sins of their nation. And if they would not return to Yahweh, judgment would surely, surely come to their doorsteps. And with no response, God then sent one final voice to Israel, Hosea, who we call the deathbed prophet of Israel. And God said to Hosea, go and marry a harlot and have children of harlotry for my people, my bride, has become a spiritual whore. And now destruction in the form of the Assyrian army was inevitable, and that would come in the year 722, you see there in red with a skull and crossbones. So this, this people Israel who had once been slaves in Egypt, they had turned their collective backs on the one who had delivered them from slavery, and now because of their sin, they were going back into slavery, this time at the hands of the Assyrians. 
Now, last week we looked at the final prophet of this divided kingdom period. You see him there in pink as well, Micah. And he's below that line because he is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. And he is bringing a message of rebuke to Judah, warning them also to return to Yahweh or else they would suffer the same fate as Israel. Now, he had been witness to the destruction of the northern kingdom. He had seen it with his own eyes. And as if he's waving his hands and saying, okay, Judah, my people, do you see what's just happened? Return to God. Return to the covenant. And Micah's message to Judah was primarily directed at social injustice, oppression, and greed, and corruption within the covenant community. And Yahweh was appalled at how the poor and the vulnerable in Judah were not only being ignored by those who were prospering, but being manipulated and abused as well. And so at this point in 722, Judah has 135 years of life left before they too will fall into captivity. And so this brings us, as we close the door on the divided kingdom, we enter into what's called the solitary kingdom there in pink from 722, the fall of Israel, to 586, the date when Judah too will go into captivity. So that's where we stand, and that's where we'll be for the next couple of weeks as we look at the next group of prophets. And then eventually when we come back from Israel, we'll get into the post-exilic kingdom as well. Now, before we just jump into our, our prophet for this morning, which is Nahum, uh, let me do just a five or six minute summary of, of, of uh, very important characters in the biblical story, the Assyrian kings. And I know I've mentioned some of these names and you're like, what are these names? So I thought I'd at least put them on the screen for you. You can see what the, how they're spelled uh, and how they're pronounced. And to give you the dates when each one of them came to power in Nineveh and how many times they're mentioned in scripture. So you see that that not only are they mentioned all over the, the, the secular uh, historical world, but they're also mentioned in Scripture. So really quick, Tiglath Pileser, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and he harassed Israel for many years, uh, extorting regular payments of tribute from the northern kingdom. His son, Shalmaneser V, after coming to power, you might recall the king of Israel stopped those, those protection money payments to Assyria and tested Shalmaneser, so he came with his army into Israel, and he began to lay waste to the northern kingdom. But it's Sargon II who actually finished the job in Israel. He's the one who actually laid siege to the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria, and brought it down in 722 BC. And he is the one who then executed this mass deportation scheme where he took slaves out of, Jewish slaves out of Israel, deported them into Assyria, and brought Assyrians into the land and mixed the gene pool, sort of ethnic cleansing the 10 tribes of Israel in the north out of existence. What's interesting is for centuries, uh, Sargon's existence was said to be a biblical myth. Secular historians used to sort of mock us and say, well, we've never found ev any evidence for this guy. But in 1842, uh, as everything eventually comes up from the earth, a French archaeologist discovered one of Sargon's palaces in a place called Dar Sharukin. And on one of the palace walls was an inscription. Listen to what it says. Quote, in the first year of my reign, I set siege to and conquered Samaria. I carried away into captivity. Listen to how specific this is. I carried away into captivity 27,290 people who lived there, and I took 50 fine chariots from my royal equipment. So much for the biblical myth. We literally dug up history from the sands of the Middle East that confirmed exactly what the Bible says Sargon did. Now, Sennacherib, of all the Neo-Assyrian kings, he plays the largest 
biblical role, and his story is intimately intertwined with the life of King Hezekiah. I mentioned last week, King Hezekiah is worthy of your study. He's a super relatable guy because he's a sort of a mixture of a guy who relies on himself and then turns in faith, and he's back and forth like me and like you as well. And so he's, he's definitely worth your time. Sennacherib decided to come and conquer the land of Judah in the year 701 B.C., And Hezekiah knew he was coming. He'd made a whole bunch of preparations for it. He'd fortified the walls of Jerusalem. He'd built the very famous Hezekiah's tunnel, which brought water into the city so that they could survive a drawn-out siege. And we have dug up Sennacherib's royal records as well, and he records that he successfully laid siege to, get this, 46 walled cities throughout the land of Judah and conquered countless small towns and villages, claiming that he took more than 200,000 Jewish slaves. At Lachish, which was a city that was in southern Judah, which is, was almost as fortified as Jerusalem, was Sennacherib's greatest triumph. In fact, in, in all of his palace reliefs, he brags about bringing down the city, Lachish. We'll see that in just a second. And in 2 Kings 18, we're told that Hezekiah is is holed up behind the walls of Jerusalem, and he gets word that Lachish has fallen, and it sends him into a panic. He realizes if Lachish can fall, what about Jerusalem? And so he panicked. In spite of Isaiah's advice to him, he sent a letter of apology to Sennacherib by messenger. Send him a, hey, I'm really sorry about this. I should not have tested you. And the Assyrian king wrote back and demanded so much money from Hezekiah to leave that the Bible says that Hezekiah was forced to strip the gold from the doors of the temple to pay him off. He lost faith in that moment. Now, Sennacherib, being the guy that he is, the Syrian that he is, he accepted Hezekiah's payment, but then refused to leave the land. And he began to taunt Hezekiah from Lachish, talking about how he's going to come and encircle the city of Jerusalem and lay siege to it. And this is where the Bible and secular history sort of dovetail together in an amazing way. One of the greatest archaeological finds that we have from this period is this little cylinder called the Taylor Prism, named after the guy who discovered it. And on this little prism, in the language of the Akkadians, you have Sennacherib's boasting after the fall of Lachish. Here's what he says. He says, as for Hezekiah, the king of Judah, I have shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. So he boasts that I've got Hezekiah trapped. It's just a matter of time before I take him and his city down. Here's the interesting thing. That's where the account ends. Nothing more is said. Sennacherib never says on the Taylor prism that he conquered Jerusalem. Instead, we know that he returned to Nineveh flush with all the cash that Hezekiah had paid to him, But as he retreated, two things were obvious. Number one, Jerusalem was still standing. And number two, Hezekiah was still in power. So what happened? Well, as usual, the Bible gives us the rest of the story. What happened behind the walls of Jerusalem is Hezekiah was desperate. He knew that he was in trouble. He knew that Sennacherib's army could lay waste to Jerusalem. And he finally did what he should have been doing all along. What did he do? He prayed. Does that sound like you and me? It does, right? I mean, let's be honest. We are so pragmatic 
And sometimes we forget to pray until the last second. So Hezekiah goes into the temple of the Lord and he he lays this letter at the throne, this letter, this taunting letter from Sennacherib, and he prays and he begs the Lord to deliver the city. And here's what Isaiah 37 says. Then Isaiah sent word to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. He will not come to the city or shoot an arrow there or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return, declares the Lord. For I, the Lord, will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. This was God stepping in to preserve the Davidic line of the Messiah in a moment of crisis. But he says, Hezekiah, it's because you prayed. It's because you finally came to me that I have done this great act. 2 Kings 19 tells us exactly how God delivered the city from the hand of Sennacherib. Uh, Reminiscent of the days of Moses, a plague strikes the camp of the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord goes throughout their camp, and the text says it wiped out 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. And so Sennacherib was forced to withdraw. Now, for obvious reasons, because kings in the ancient Near East never recorded their failures, nothing is said on the Taylor prism about why he left. It just simply ends with, I've got Hezekiah encircled in his city. And frankly, secular, secular historians hate being boxed in by this story. It drives them absolutely crazy. On the one hand, they can't possibly affirm the miracle of the Bible. That would be ridiculous, right? But on the other hand, they have no good evidence to suggest any other alternative for why Sennacherib, in all of his power and all of his might, with the city encircled, didn't bring it down, but left it completely untouched. But we know the answer. So let's keep going. Esarhaddon is the next king of Assyria. He actually does not have much to do with Judah. Most of his life is, is consumed with a series of military campaigns and conquering Egypt. And finally, Ashurbanipal. And he is the, the last great king of Assyria. And he is the one who comes into view in our story today. So if you haven't already done it, grab your Bibles. Turn to Nahum. Now, I'll just call it Nahum, Nahum, Nahum. There's all these different names. Nahum is how you would say it in Hebrew. But we call everything by weird names. Nahum. Is Nahum the best way to say it? Is that the way you guys say it, Nahum? Okay, we'll just go with that. Nahum is right after Micah. Uh, You know, honestly, if we weren't preaching this, you probably would never have read this book. Um, I'm pretty convinced this is the least preached book in the entire Bible. The least preached. And there's a reason for that. Because it concerns just one thing, the downfall and the destruction of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So it's not a fun read. Nahum is one of three Old Testament prophets who specifically speak an oracle against a foreign nation. We've already looked at one. Obadiah spoke an oracle against Edom. Nahum today is going to speak against Assyria, and then we'll get to Habakkuk, and he is going to pronounce an oracle against Babylon. All three of those nations were guilty of afflicting God's people in unique ways, and for their sins, God promises to bring recompense upon their heads. Now, Nahum is not a nuanced book at all. It is designed to be bloody and brutal, and for that reason, many people have often looked at it, and they're a little bit puzzled. Why is this in the Old Testament canon. But I want you to keep this in mind for a second. 
Part of the prophet's job, as he speaks or writes, is to describe for his audience the character of God. And there's some very important attributes of God that we learn from the book of Nahum. Primarily, what his righteous anger and his wrathful nature look like. As you know, for too many people today, we like to think about God as this sort of kindly old gentleman with a long you know, white beard and a little merry twinkle in his eye, a little Santa-like. That's the way people like to think of God. And he just, he just loves everybody unconditionally, and he can't bear the thought of ever judging anybody at all. But Nahum tells us differently. Because God's anger and his wrath are intimately connected with his justice and his holiness. And those are things he must maintain to be God. Justice and holiness. Because all sin deserves to be punished. And all of humanity will be held to account by this holy, holy, holy judge of the universe. So keep that in mind as we read. Because sometimes we read this and we go, wow, this is brutal. Keep in mind God's justice and his holiness and how that leads to his righteous anger and wrath. First verse, the oracle of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Now, it's interesting. We know very little about this prophet, but everything else in his prophecy is really clear and well-documented. We certainly know where Nineveh was. We know who ruled Nineveh, and we know how it fell. We can have all the details for that, but we don't know much about the man himself. We know that his name means comfort. In fact, Nahum is a shortened version of Nehemiah, which means Yahweh comforts. The only thing we really know is where he says he's from, which is apparently a city called Elkosh. Only problem is we have no idea where Elkosh was, at least in the 7th century. Most scholars assume that it must have been some little town in Judah somewhere that sort of disappeared from the pages of history or maybe was renamed something else. We just don't have a record of it. It's also possible that Elkosh was once located up in the northern kingdom, that it's the same city that we call Capernaum. In our New Testament, the center of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And the reason for that is in Hebrew, Capernaum is actually pronounced Kafar Nahum, which is the village of Nahum, or the village of comfort. So it's possible that at some point the people of Elkosh, Capernaum, loved this prophet so much, after all, he did pronounce judgment against the hated Assyrians, that they decided that he's from our town, let's just name the town after him. That's entirely possible, we just don't know. In terms of dating his prophecy, we have a good range of dates to work with. We know exactly the date that Nineveh fell, 612 BC. And there's a reference inside the work itself in chapter 3, verse 8. Nahum mentions the fall of an Egyptian city called Noamon. And we know that's a city that the Assyrians themselves conquered in the year 663 BC. So that establishes our range. Nahum writes sometime between those two dates, 663 and 612, and most scholars think later rather than earlier. So our best understanding is he's prophesying somewhere around the year 650 BC. So we come back to one of our, one of our timelines here. So now the north is empty because in 722 they got pirated, <laughs> right? They, they got destroyed. And so now we only have kings in the south in the solitary kingdom, Hezekiah in 716, and then Manasseh and Josiah, and you see where Nahum fits into that particular time frame. And if we're right about his date, 650 BC, we know that at this point, Assyria is still the, the sort of the big dog bully of the ancient Near East. We also know that that's during the reign of King Manasseh. And 
Interestingly, Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah, but not like his father in the least. In fact, King Manasseh is recorded in scripture as the single most wicked king in the history of the southern kingdom. We'll come back to him a little bit more next week. So at the time Nahum is writing, spiritually things are not good in Judah, and the shadow of Assyria was still looming over the land. Manasseh was forced to submit Judah as a, as a vassal state to Ashurbanipal and to pay him protection money in order to stay alive. So that's what's going on, spiritually dying and under the threat and the thumb of Assyria. Now, what about Nineveh? Now, we touched briefly on Nineveh weeks ago when we studied Jonah, but let me share a few more details about this city so that you can grasp sort of the the breadth of everything that Nahum is going to share with us today. Nineveh was a very ancient city. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, way, way back. And it's, it had always been one of the most prominent cities of all of Mesopotamia, but the kings of the Neo-Assyrian Empire made it the largest and most impressive city the world had ever seen. In fact, this is an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like back during the Neo-Assyrian period. All these cute little Assyrians frolicking in the park you see here, right? But the Neo-Assyrian kings expanded the city and, and built it into this luxurious place, especially Sennacherib. He redesigned the city. He laid out all new streets. He put in public squares. He put in parks. He built botanical gardens. He even built a zoo. And we have found these things plus records of them. He built this elaborate water system that used 18 canals and the world's oldest aqueduct to bring running water into the city. And naturally, the jewel of the city was his palace, his royal residence that was 70 feet tall, seven-story building. Think about this with multiple floors, and catch this, at least 71 rooms in it. We found 71. There could be more. That's how big his palace was. Uh, Constructed of limestone and brick with doorways that were guarded by these colossal pagan symbols. Maybe you've seen them. I'll show you a picture later. These winged lions with a a, a human head on it. And, And they weighed about 30 tons apiece. So the Assyrians were very good at at moving things around and building. The walled portion of the city was eight miles long and three miles wide, and then had suburbs that ran 14 miles to the north and 20 miles to the south. So by ancient standards, we're talking about an absolutely massive city. The fortifications, the protections were almost unassailable, a series of protective walls, deep ditches built in between them, and a moat, a 150-foot-wide moat that circled the entire city. The outer wall itself was the height of a 10-story building and 50 feet thick. Think about that, the size of that wall, with 15 gates all the way around it and a series of towers that were 200 feet tall. This is an impressive place. And then there were the rivers. Remember, in the ancient world, access to water meant life, and so Nineveh was built specifically adjacent to two rivers. The famous Tigris River, you hear about the Tigris and the Euphrates, the Tigris River uh, bordered it on the west, and then there was a second river, and I'm going to show you, this is, a, this is a, a drawing of the map that was made after the city was excavated. The Tigris runs here on the western side of the city, but there's a smaller river, a tributary to the Tigris called the Koser River that runs right through the heart of the city of Nineveh. And we have found royal records 
where Sennacherib complains about the fact that the Kosar River in certain seasons tends to rise over its banks and flood the city. And he was concerned about it. And history now tells us he was right to be concerned about it. That's a teaser for later. Now, as we turn our attention to what Nahum pronounced, a few things to know. Remember, who did God send to Nineveh 100 years earlier? Jonah. Jonah. He had sent Jonah to call Nineveh to repent, and there was this great response from the people, right? You can go back and listen to that sermon. Uh, everybody, from the youngest to the oldest to the king to the common man, they responded in some way. We talked about whether they were actually saved or whether it was societal reform, but they put on sackcloth and ash, and they, they promised to turn from their wicked ways. And because of that response, God withdrew his anger from the city, and he spared it. Now we're two generations later, two generations later. And whatever repentance that had taken place in the days of Jonah had, had dissipated, had gone away. And the Assyrian people had forgotten Yahweh. They had come back to their sin. And now the city was once again ripe for judgment. And so you have to understand, Nahum and Jonah are two completely different books. In Nahum, there is no call to repentance. It is simply a declaration of judgment. So it really is in, very, in, in many ways the counterpart to the book of Jonah. Now look back at verse 1 again. Notice that Nahum's work is called the book of the vision. What does that mean? Well, it means that as, as God was, was, was giving Nahum this message, it came to him in more than just words from God, but in a vision. In some way, like Isaiah and other prophets as well, he saw in his mind's eye what he's about to describe and what a sight it must have been. Let me give you a quick uh, sort of outline of the book of Nahum. It's actually very easy to organize, and we're going to look at some selected passages as we go along. But chapter 1 is often referred to as the hymn of the divine warrior, the avenging God. Chapter 2 is a brutal account of Nineveh's destruction. And then chapter 3 describes the aftermath, what happened once the city fell. So let's look at the divine warrior. Look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and let's learn something about God here. Chapter 1, verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Now, there's a ton of things packed into those two verses. But one thing we have to make sure we understand, when we read the Old Testament and we see words like jealous and vengeful and angry and wrathful, we have to be careful not to wrongly ascribe human attributes to God, right? Human attributes. After all, we're not supposed to be any of those things, at least sinfully, correct? But God does say that he is those things, yet without sin. So what does that mean? All of those attributes, again, are intimately connected to the covenant that Yahweh made with Israel going back to Genesis 12, where he pledged himself to a particular people and promised divine love and protection. So when we hear the word jealous connected with God, understand God's jealousy is a passionate zeal for that which rightfully belongs to him. Okay? A passionate zeal for that which rightfully belongs to him. And though he's patient and slow to wrath, eventually his righteous anger will be kindled towards anyone who seeks to harm his people. That's an important principle. 
So there's nothing random about God's anger. There's nothing impulsive or selfish about it. It's fully righteous, fully justified, and it's terrible, burning with fire and a wonder to behold. And we should tremble as we, anytime we read about God's wrath and God's righteous anger, we should tremble. Sometimes, again, we, we picture him as, the, as that Santa Claus figure. Be careful. Our God's a consuming fire, Scripture says. Who can stand before his indignation, Nahum asks in verse 6. Who can endure the burning of his anger? And Nahum tells us that the divine warrior now has his avenging eyes set on Nineveh, which is the heart of this Assyrian war machine. What are the sins of Nineveh? Well, verse 11 in chapter 1 says that they plotted evil against the Lord himself. By targeting God's people, they had plotted evil against God himself. Verse 14 says they're full of idolatry, building houses for false gods. They are contemptible, Nahum says, or vile in the eyes of God. Later, we're going to read that they're guilty of bloodshed and plundering and enslavement and cruelty. There's plenty to go around when it comes to the indictment against Assyria. And then the promise that God gives to Judah. Chapter 1, verse 7 is worth memorizing. It is such an important verse. Because this is what's great about this chapter. You have these alternating messages. Judgment against Nineveh, comfort for Judah. Even though they're a sinful people, they're God's people. Judgment, comfort. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Now, it's important to understand what that means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's people are always going to be spared hardship and even tragedy. Make sure you know that. Because, again, there's that, that weird, uh, you know, sort of semi-Christian teaching out there that says, well, God only wants to prosper you. And so everything should go well in your life. This does not mean that you're going to be spared difficulty. Okay? Think carefully about this. When Assyria attacked and carried away the northern kingdom of Israel... Did they deserve it as a nation? Yes, they did. But tragically, would there have been faithful Yahweh worshipers swept up into that judgment? Absolutely. Faithful people, godly people, Yahweh worshipers caught up, some of them probably killed, some of them taken into slavery. And when Judah falls in 586, the same will be true. Godly people will suffer because of the sins of the nation. That's why verse 7 is so important, because it says God is a stronghold in the day of trouble, not a stronghold when you're sitting around comfortable. He is that as well, but the teaching here is when things get rough, he's a stronghold. Take refuge in him. God knows that belong to him, who belongs to him. He knows who takes refuge in him, and his promise to us, guys, is no matter how difficult things get. God knows our circumstances. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The number of hairs on our head, and he knows us because we take refuge in him. So whether, whether that's you know, giving us peace in our hearts as things are falling apart around us in America, and sometimes it feels that way, and he gives us peace in the midst of that, maybe he gives us physical protection here on the earth, or maybe not. Maybe he doesn't protect us here on earth, but he rewards us in heaven. Did you catch that? That, too, is part of his promise. But what we know is that the Lord is good for those who love him. Amen? So let's look at the destruction then in chapter 2. As we open up chapter 2, 
Nahum takes on the position of what we call a watchman on the tower or a watchman on the walls. He looks out from the walls of Nineveh and he sees this enemy approaching. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, The scatterer, the one who scatters, has come up against you, Nineveh. So man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all of your strength. Drop down to verse 3. The description of this army that's coming. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet, of course, representing blood. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. And then in verse 4, you get an idea of the chaos that ensued once the enemy had broken through Nineveh's walls. Verse 4, the chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. And then drop down to verse 6. Here's something really remarkable. We get a direct prophecy of how the city of Nineveh was taken. Verse 6, the gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. And that will be borne out by archaeology. It appears that the Kosa River flooded the city, undermined the walls, and allowed the enemy to come in and breach the city. History also bears out the truths of verse 8 and 9. Look what it says. Now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. So while many people in Nineveh were caught in the flood and the slaughter, and can you imagine your city is, is flooded, the waters are rising, the walls are falling in, chariots are trying to race through, guys with swords cutting people down. It's absolute chaos here. And so while many are caught up in that, a portion of the Assyrian army flees. That's what 8 and 9 says. A portion of them get, get out. But if you continue, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but look at verse 9 now. It says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there's no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Here's the cool thing. We have a really good historical source on the fall of Nineveh, a man named Diodorus of Sicily. And according to his account, there's a good reason why a portion of the Assyrian army was able to escape the city, because when the, the enemy came in and saw all the treasure they could loot, they said, ah, let them run. And they started grabbing everything that they possibly could. That's what they were after, is the loot. Now, catch two things about the way God operates here. Number one, he repays his enemies in very specific ways. Remember, the irony here is that Assyria had extracted vast amounts of wealth from all these surrounding nations, and guess what was happening now? It was being redistributed. It was being taken back by some of the very people that they had taken money from. Second, look how thorough God's wrath is. Look at the end of verse 9. She, Nineveh, is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. There's an old saying that goes this. Although the mills of God grind slowly, they grind exceedingly small. So when he moves in judgment, nothing escapes him. And in that day, Nineveh was essentially wiped off the face of the earth. And we'll get to that in just a second as well. Finally, one last thing to see here. And I find this super interesting. In Scripture, sometimes we see God taunting his enemies, taunting them, a little smack talk. And, and it's funny the way he does this here. You have to know Assyrian kings were obsessed with lions. I mean, it's all over their, their decorative objects in everything that we find. They, there used to be Asiatic lions all over the Middle East, and there's some, just a handful left in India today. They're basically gone. 
But the Assyrian kings were famous for hunting lions. It's how they showed their manhood. And they would often depict uh, in their sculptures and reliefs kings, you know, killing lions and then bringing them into their temples and offering them to their gods as sacrifices. And so if you look at verse 11, God says to Nineveh, where is the den of lions? Where are you? Where is this famous den of lions? And he goes on to talk about how the Assyrians had acted like lions. They had filled their palaces and temples with the flesh of other nations. But now that Yahweh has come upon them in judgment, now where are the lions? They're gone. They fled. The city is no more. God taunts them. Let's look at chapter 3 in the aftermath. Chapter 3 begins with a woe oracle. We looked at these last week. It's serious business when God pronounces a woe. Chapter 3, verse 1, woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Guys, that is a serious historical legacy. doesn't matter if you're talking to a Bible scholar or a secular historian, violence and extortion and cruelty, that is their legacy. And in another ironic taunt in verse 8, God reminds Nineveh of one of her former conquests. Look at verse 8, chapter 3. The text says, are you better than Noamon? which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her. Here's what's going on here. God says, hey, Nineveh, do you remember how you traveled all the way down into Egypt and you came up against this city called Noamon? By the way, it's called Thebes now, right? Became Thebes. And you, this city was unassailable because the Nile River protected it. You thought, what? We can bring this down. Well, what about your city? You think Nineveh will be saved by your rivers? In, in, in the face of my attack, you think those rivers are going to save you? You think your walls are going to do anything? I will bring you down because you're no stronger than Noamon. And so God promises to show Nineveh just how vulnerable she is and to expose her as a harlot. Look at verse 5 in chapter 3. God is going to expose Nineveh as a harlot. Verse 5, I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. And if you turn over to just one last verse, the very final verse, you will see God's promise that Assyria will be forever destroyed and not one person will weep for them because of their cruelty in the past. Verse 19, your wound, Nineveh, is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over your death. They will clap, your, clap their hands for on whom has not your evil passed Continually, So you can see this happening, right? Celebrations all over the region. The bully has been brought down. Ding dong, the witch is dead, basically, is what's going on. Nobody will weep for this awful, awful kingdom. So this is written in the year 650 BC. And we know that Nineveh is going to fall 40 years later. So what actually happened? How did this actually come to pass? Let's go back to our timeline Okay, so Nineveh, we have, an, we have another skull and crossbones. Nineveh's going to fall in 612. And you see where Nahum is on the timeline as well. 631 is the death of King Ashurbanipal, the last great king of Assyria. And after his death, things go all haywire in Nineveh. His oldest son comes to the throne. He proves to be a disaster. He dies suspiciously four years later, and a civil war breaks out to see who will control this massive empire. And eventually, Ashurbanipal's youngest son, great name, Sinshariskun, just rolls off the tongue, 
He takes control, but he is young and untested. And that exact, exactly what the weakness that the surrounding nations have been looking for, a young king who's untested and soft. And so the first nation to test Assyria in this moment are the Babylonians. A regional governor and a general, a very famous military man named Nabopolassar, begins a rebellion in Babylon. And he begins to attack various garrisons of the Assyrian army. And so this young king of Assyria is now forced to travel down south to put down this rebellion, but twice he comes up against Nabopolassar and he is defeated. And this results in Nabopolassar then declaring that Babylon is no longer under the rule of Assyria. They are an independent nation, and he is now calling himself the king of Babylon. If that's not bad enough, he gets word, the, the king of Assyria, that a civil war is broken out again back in Nineveh. He retreats with his army. He puts down that rebellion and then realizes he is now under attack from two different directions. In fact, another map for you guys. So the blue dot is Jerusalem. The red dot is Nineveh. And the green dot is Babylon. This Assyrian king gets back home. Again, this is a young king. He's inexperienced in battle. He's already been beaten twice by Nabopolassar. And now he realizes that the Medes, uh, ancient Iranian tribe from the east, have now marched over the Zagros mountain range and are in Assyrian territory. At the same time, the Scythians, who come from the Caucasus region in the north, they're marching south as well. And now this poor guy has got a battle on two fronts. And he's in trouble. And so the Scythians and the Medes uh, uh, basically destroy a whole bunch of different uh, cities. They eventually capture the city of Assur, which was the religious center of Assyria. And when Nabopolassar down in Babylon hears that Assur has fallen, he smells blood in the water. And he marches his army up north. And these three groups, who were always mortal enemies, decide to come together in an alliance to destroy Assyria forever. And that's exactly what they do. In 612 BC, as prophesied by Nahum, these combined forces of these three allies lay siege to Nineveh for three months. And Diodorus, the historian, gives us the key detail. He says, in the third month of their attack, the Kosar River rose over its banks, flooded the city, and the enemy breached the walls. Now, it's possible, historians have looked at this and said, well, this could have been a natural phenomenon, just a, a boatload of rain coming from the sky. It's also possible that the enemy had found a way to open the sluice gate that controlled the water because they had to control the water. They had to dam it up at certain places so that it wouldn't overwhelm the city. But whichever is the case, it was the flooding of the river that's mentioned three times by Nahum that water will destroy Nineveh. It's the flooding that eventually brings the city down. Now, as I shared earlier, a portion of the Assyrian army escapes. They flee the scene, and they actually retreat west to a city, that red dot called Haran. Haran. And two years later, Nabopolassar, by the way, the Medes and Scythians go back home. In fact, the Medes actually camp in the area of Nineveh. They're given that portion of the land for themselves. But Nabopolassar is not going to be content to just you know, allow the Assyrians to rebuild he travels to Haran two years later, defeats the Assyrian army again, and a remnant of the army then retreats even further west to a very famous city called Carchemish. And you see another skull and crossbones. 
Because that's going to be the final death of the Assyrian Empire. Literally done at Carchemish. Four years after the Battle of Haran, the Babylonians come to Carchemish and they put the final nail in the coffin of the Assyrian Empire. Now, I mentioned that battle. You're like, what's the big deal? This is a very important battle in biblical history. Here's why. See where Carchemish is in northern Syria? There's a, a people group that's concerned about Nabopolassar's growing power, the Egyptians. And the Egyptians decide they're going to ride north to help the Assyrians fight off the Babylonians because this is all a sort of a geopolitical chess game. We can't allow anybody to become too powerful. Why does that matter? The Egyptian pharaoh, whose name is Necho II, is going to bring his army north up to Carchemish, but to do that, he has to go through what country? Judah. He has to go through Judah. And so when he does that, that's going to bring him into contact with King Josiah of Judah, and that tragic story we will cover next Sunday, another tease. Also at Carchemish in the year 605, uh, an important detail, the Babylonians annihilate the Egyptians, and they destroy the, the, what's left of the Assyrian army, and they establish themselves now as the big dog in the ancient Near East, the Babylonians. One important detail that comes out of that, the general, the Babylonian general leading that battle at Carchemish is a man named Nebuchadnezzar. So you know where we're going next, right? The Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar are next on the scene. Make sense? Now, just if I haven't bored you enough yet, a few, a few more final notes about Nineveh. And listen, I'm going to share this with you because some of this is really important for apologetics. How many of you guys like apologetics? You talk to people and are like, I'm not sure I believe the Bible. Guys, guys, there's so much detail in this little tiny prophecy that so lines up with everything we know about ancient Near East history. So to be able to walk somebody through this and say, look at the detail, look how it played out, how do you think that happened? This is really important, okay? Nahum prophesied the desolation of Nineveh, and that's exactly what happened. It was destroyed so completely that it disappeared for almost 2,500 years. In fact, Alexander the Great fights a battle not far from Nineveh in the year 331 or so, and has no idea he's standing over Nineveh. That's how deeply this thing was buried. Historians and archaeologists look for it for centuries, oftentimes passing right over it. Until 1847, I'll give you this guy, Sir Austin Henry Laird, found Nineveh, get this, more than 30 feet under the sand, three stories down, hit the first layer. It had been so covered up, hit the first layer of the destroyed city of Nineveh. It had been found right near the Tigris River, near the, the modern-day city of Mosul, which is where our forces fought in 2004 against Iraqi forces. Turns out that Nineveh was underneath two large earth mounds. This cracks me up. One of which was known by locals for centuries as Nabi Yunus, Arabic for the prophet Jonah. Locals just called that mound, that's the prophet Jonah. They some, yeah, they knew the history, right? But all these scientists and all these archaeologists kept passing right by it. They're going, Nabi Yunus, Nabi Yunus, right? <laughs> Amazing. Two years of digging and Layard finally found the residence of Sennacherib with the 71 rooms and more than 100 sculptured wall reliefs depicting all of his victories, including that very famous battle at Lachish. He found the, the, the royal library of Ashurbanipal, more than 22,000 
22,000 carved tablets. I'll show you pictures. Actually, I'll show pictures now. So if you went to the British Museum today, this is sort of what it looks like. They've taken these giant slabs from, out, from again, way down on the earth, lifted them up very carefully, and they're displayed all through the British Museum now. Here's what the, some of them look like. You see the detail. This is part of the Battle of Lachish, and it's just designed to show the number of soldiers that, that were at the battle. Here you see archers, tons and tons, three levels of archers shooting their arrows. This is interesting. So this on the far right is supposed to be uh, King Sennacherib, and you see these. So you see how the, the Assyrians are always wearing these tall hats. The Jews are always predicted or, or uh, projected in these as wearing like skull caps. And so these are the Jews coming to Sennacherib on their knees, begging for mercy. Guy wasn't arrogant at all. Here, here's what I, I mentioned: the thirty-ton winged animals that that are found throughout the palace. These these winged lion bull creatures with the human heads. The king is always shown as being a great hunter. You see him riding on the horse. And here's the, so here he is stabbing a lion in the mouth. So he's hunting lions. This is a big deal for all the kings of Assyria. And this is a picture of them then coming into their temple. See how the king is coming to the temple. He got these four lions on the ground. He's offering them as a sacrifice to his God. And then lastly, same type of thing. You have these soldiers that are coming in with a lion and presenting them before the king. So this is the type of thing that was found all over the walls of these Assyrian palaces. And in his notes, Layard confirms much of what Diodorus had recorded about the size of Nineveh, the height of its walls, all the lavish decor. Um, he found massive, massive amounts of unburied skeletons and bones, just tons of people that obviously got caught up in the slaughter and the flood and were never buried and just got sealed in there. Uh, he found evidence of fire, plaster that was burnt yellow by the flames and then blackened with soot and ash, and clear evidence of massive, massive water damage when he got down there. In fact, he describes it as basically the walls, the mud and brick coming together and collapsing in on the city and creating a seal that basically sealed everything in for almost 2,500 years. Nineveh completely destroyed. Now, the problem then and now is that Nineveh is such a big site that even the people that are working on it now, and there's not a lot of money uh, to fund it, they say they will never dig it up completely because it's such a large site and because there's a modern village built right over it that they can't just demolish and two Islamic cemeteries that, according to Islamic law, cannot be disturbed. So if we could get in there, we'd probably find all kinds of more exciting jewels and things that we could talk about. We just can't get there. And that is, unfortunately, that is every archaeologist's biggest frustration is funding and people to dig because there's so many things in Turkey, in Greece, in the Holy Land that we just can't get to, even though we know all of its secrets are buried under the ground. Okay. Whew. What did we learn from Nahum? I take a drink. That's a lot of history. I mean, what do we take from a story like this? Death and destruction. What do we take? Well, again, as I shared earlier, the prophet's job is to reveal the character of God. And we have seen some important things about God's anger and about his wrath. We can never forget that God is not just loving and gracious, but he is utterly just and utterly holy. And those attributes require him to judge and punish every sin. Let me say that again. Those attributes require him to punish every sin. All of mankind should fear the wrath of God. 
Why? Because he's a God of perfect justice. Because he will make everything right. Because he will punish every sin. Romans 2 tells us that God will render to each person according to his deeds. And when we see in scripture how God deals with that, yeah, we should tremble. Because he's a God of great power and wrath. But friends, is this not why the gospel is so great? We forget this, right? We, do, we love the gospel, but sometimes we forget why the gospel is so great. And why is that? Because the God who pours out total destruction upon his enemies is the same God who sent his one and only son to be your substitute for your sins on the cross. He paid the price so that you'll never have to experience this type of righteous anger and wrath. That's why the gospel is so great. May we never take that for granted, folks. Because otherwise, we're Nineveh, aren't we? We're Nineveh. Now, that's the individual perspective on Nahum. What about, are are there national implications in this book for us as Americans? I briefly mentioned this last Sunday. I asked the question, would you be surprised if God poured out his wrath on America? Would you be surprised? I mean, we know that God judges the nations, but it's weird. As Americans, we're like, well, we're sort of exempt from that because we're pretty good. I mean, that, that's sort of the, the mentality in a lot of churches. Well, wave the flag. We're pretty good. So, so maybe we're not going to be judged. I don't see it that way. What if we held up our culture and our national sins, and we compared them with the culture and the national sins of Israel and Judah? What if you went home and you made you know, a graph, two lines, Israel and Judah, America, and you looked at all the categories of of sin, would there be similarities? False worship? Check. Idolatry? Yeah. Sexual sin? Yep. Violence? Uh Uh-huh. Unjust wars? Tragically, yes. Corruption? Greed? And then you ask the bigger question, are we in the process of returning to God or are we going the other direction? Are we living at ease in comfort and prosperity while failing to grieve over our sins as a people? Like Nineveh in the 8th century BC, we are a superpower here in America. We wield a ton of power. And I've said it, I don't know how many times in this series, to whom much is entrusted, much is required. I was reading an article this week uh, that compared America with previous empires from the past. And I, 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 I sort of cropped out this quote. It said this, At present, the United States asserts an authority over the rest of the world that has never existed before. Geographically, we're not a dominant global force, but militarily, diplomatically, and economically, the U.S. wields more power than any other nation ever has on planet Earth. And so much is required of us in terms of how our leaders wield that power. I mean, that's just, this is just a, a, a blunt truth. On Tuesday night uh, last week at our C group, we sort of started talking about this. And the general consensus was, and I think this is right, is that America is under God's judgment. In fact, it's happening right now. In a Romans 1 way, we are under God's judgment right now. It's as if God has removed his hand and he has given us over, as Paul says, to our degrading passions. 
And so you see our people continuing to run away from truth, run away from the Lord, and run towards cultural suicide and destruction. That's happening in our world right now. And so we, we, we talked about like what if God were to completely pour out his wrath on our country, what might that look like? And I don't know because I'm not a prophet. But I can guess how it might look. And my best guess, and I don't know when, but sometime in the future, an economic collapse in this country. That God would take away from us the very thing that we put our trust in, which is our economic power. So imagine if America's economic power collapses, not only would that affect us, but it would affect the entire global economy and would probably give other nations who don't have as you know, good faith in mind to grow and to become more powerful and to do violent things. It could literally send our entire globe into chaos if God were to pour out his wrath in that way. But again, can I come back to the comfort that Nahum gives us? We may someday be swept up in God's judgment. That could happen. And it won't be fun. But the hope we have is, back to chapter 1, verse 7, in the midst of the chaos, the Lord is good. So we have a tendency as Americans to worship God when things are going really well. It's easy. Church is fun. But what about when it gets super hard? What about when it gets tragic? What about when, when judgment comes and we don't have all the things that we love so much, will we continue to worship God? He says, I'm good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He says, I know those who take refuge in me. So if you're here this morning and you don't know him and he doesn't know you, you should tremble because you're living under the shadow of his terrible wrath as described in this book. But if you've trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in the ransom that he paid for you on the cross, then there's two things we can do. Number one, we can be at peace, knowing that God is your stronghold and that no matter what comes, he will care for you. That's number one. Number two, picking up on our theme from last Sunday, in the meantime, as our nation is going this way, we can do what Micah told us to do, and that is in every way we can, do justice. Do justice. Act righteously in the way you deal with everybody, believers, unbelievers, everybody. Speak out when you see injustice happening and strive to make America a more righteous nation where we protect the most vulnerable people among us. Guys, the church has to lead in this. We, not, we may not be able to save our nation to, to cause God to relent. That's totally up to him. He's sovereign. But in the time that we're given, may we lead by example. May we, in our hearts, confess sin and repent and return to God. And maybe, just maybe, God will relent from the judgment that he plans to pour out on this nation. Amen?